Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for March 28th through April 3rd, 2022. This is covering Exodus chapters 7 through 13. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Hello, Scriptures! Wow, looking powerful today. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 37 minutes, 10 seconds. That sounds great, and what would it be daily? 5 minutes, 18 seconds. We've all got 5 minutes, so let's keep up with it. Here we've got time codes if you want to take it chapter by chapter. Otherwise, buckle up and let's study them all together. I'd like to remind our listeners that we are currently recording during the COVID-19 pandemic, and there was a meme that came out early on in the pandemic that just made me chuckle, and I thought we'd start with it today. This is Pharaoh seeing all of us freaking out over just one plague. (laughs) Now, this will be a lot more entertaining after this lesson when we talk about the 10 plagues that Egypt is going to go through. Right. So let's start with Exodus chapter 7. In the first five verses, the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron to return to Pharaoh and tell him again to free the children of Israel. And note the JST clarification in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, I have made thee a prophet to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy spokesman. Also in verse 3, remember what we talked about in our last lesson. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? It was Pharaoh. He has his agency. That's right. We'll be reminded of that again today. Let's take a look in verse 6. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them. So did they. Now, a side note, we learn in verse 7 that Moses is currently 80 years old and Aaron, his older brother, is 83. So as we go forward, let's look at what the Lord commanded them to do and how fearless Moses and Aaron were in carrying out the Lord's miracles. Starting in verse 8, And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then you shall say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. It's important when reading this and other scriptural stories not to get caught up in superstitions. The rod in this story is simply a rod. It seems to be used as a tool to demonstrate to Pharaoh that the plagues and miracles that he witnesses are performed by God through Moses and not just a coincidence. Yeah, remember that this was one of the signs God told Moses to do for the elders of Israel to demonstrate that God was with him. This is back in Moses chapter 4, the first five verses. Now he will use it to show the Pharaoh that his message comes from God. The Israelite elders believed Moses when he showed them those miracles. How about Pharaoh? Hmm. Verse 11, Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. 
For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. From the seminary manual, it tells us the magicians of Pharaoh's court had power given them from Satan to duplicate many of the miracles wrought by Moses. But notice that the Lord's power is greater than the power of mankind or the devil or false gods that mankind worships. And that's demonstrated here by the fact that Moses and Aaron's snake swallowed up the others. So why should the devil be given power to confuse and allow for people to question whether or not something is from God? Why would he allow that? Why not just make it really clear? Look, it's the power of God. I used to feel the same way. I knew that the restored gospel of Jesus Christ was true. So why wasn't it clear to everyone that there was a prophet on the earth today, the divine role of Joseph Smith in the Restoration, the Book of Mormon? But remember how important agency is. Faith is a choice. Therefore, agency is fundamentally a part of faith. You couldn't use agency unless there was a compelling reason to believe and a compelling reason not to believe. Remember, if we don't have that choice, then we have what Alma 32 calls a sure knowledge in that thing, and then faith is dead. But for us, there always has to be a compelling reason to believe that there is a God, that Joseph Smith was a prophet, that the Book of Mormon or the Bible are the Word of God, but there also has to be compelling reasons not to believe it. And then we can choose. Here again, we see this. There is a compelling reason for Pharaoh to believe that God is manifesting himself through Moses and a compelling reason not to believe. Now, what will he do with it? And as we can see going forward, where will it take him? So let's go back to the chapter, verse 13. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. Now again, remember that in footnote A, the JST clarifies that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Joseph made that inspired correction for each reference about Pharaoh and his hardened heart. So what are the famous ten plagues of Egypt that will come? From the seminary manual, the plagues served an important purpose. They showed Pharaoh, Egypt, and the Israelites that Jesus Christ, Jehovah, is more powerful than the false Egyptian gods. Egypt had many false gods, including the Pharaoh himself. Some interpreters suggest a symbolic correlation between each plague and an Egyptian deity, assuming they were each meant to demonstrate Jehovah's superiority over a specific god. This explanation is difficult to confirm in every case. However, there is no doubt that the plagues as a whole were intended to demonstrate the power of Jehovah over the Egyptian pantheon, which included the divine Pharaoh himself. Great point. So, let's jump into Plague 1, starting at verse 15. Get thee unto Pharaoh in the morning, lo, he goeth out unto the water, and thou shalt stand by the river's brink against he come, and the rod which was turned to a serpent shalt thou take in thine hand, and thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness, and behold, hitherto thou wouldst not hear. Thus saith the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river. 
Now, this is specifically the Nile, their principal water source. Right. And they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the fish shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Now the magicians duplicated this miracle with their enchantments, and Pharaoh would not believe. Note the footnote on verse 23, the phrase, Neither did he set his heart to this also, is a Hebrew idiom, meaning that he is paying no regard even to this. Right. In verse 24, And all the Egyptians digged round about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the river. Notice also in that first plague, and we'll see this continuing on as the miracles happen, that Moses commands Aaron. So the Lord commands Moses to command Aaron. Aaron, remember, is his spokesman, and we'll see how often Aaron is there serving under Moses' direction. You know, that brings up a really good point. A lot of times when this story is portrayed in, like, movies, for example, they forget that Aaron is the actual spokesman, and usually they have Moses speak. Well, and how important that is that Aaron obviously is very capable, but the Lord didn't choose Aaron. Aaron's job is to help the one that God has chosen. So let's take a look at the next plague, starting in Exodus chapter 8, in verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs. And the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into thine house, and into thy bedchamber, and upon thy bed, and into the house of thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thine ovens, and into thy kneading troughs. And the frogs shall come up both on thee, and upon thy people, and upon all thy servants. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch forth thine hand with thy rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up upon the land of Egypt. And Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt. And the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs upon the land of Egypt. So is anyone surprised that the magicians aren't using their powers to stop the plague? They're adding to it. Ah, you're going to make frogs come all over the place and be such a problem. Well, we can add to it. We can make more frogs. Great job, magicians. (laughs) You, You really showed them. What's hilarious to me about that is, did they really perform this? Or was it just something like, ah, we can make frogs appear and frogs would have appeared anyway? Right. And they'd say, yeah, but those were our frogs. We did those frogs. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But notice, just as we were talking about in verse 6, for this miracle, Moses gives instructions to Aaron. And Aaron is the one who stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt. Yes, right. So let's go on in verse 8. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may do sacrifice unto the Lord. 
And Moses said unto Pharaoh, Glory over me. Now, that's kind of a strange phrase, glory over me. Remember when you read things like that, type the verse, chapter and verse, into your search bar and take a look at other translations. And in this case, this is the NASB, the honor is yours to tell me. Or as in the NIV's translation, Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you. So let's look back at the King James. And Moses said unto Pharaoh, Glory over me, when shall I entreat for thee and for thy servants and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and thy houses, that they may remain in the river only? And he said, Tomorrow. And he said, Be it according to thy word, that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from thee and from thy houses and from thy servants and from thy people. They shall remain in the river only. And Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried unto the Lord because of the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the villages, and out of the fields. And they gathered them together upon heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart, and hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. It's interesting that there was a respite from the plague. In other words, there were no new frogs that came up, but the frogs that were there were dead and rotting and the land stank. And so even after the plague was stayed, there was still an after effect. And perhaps that's what made Pharaoh a little bit more bitter. So this is one of the many close victories. The Pharaoh decides that the next day, if the frogs are gone, he will let Moses and his people go. But after God, through Moses, keeps his end of the deal, Pharaoh changes his mind. I'd love to say that this is the last time. It is not. Right. So that brings us to the next plague, lice. Verse 16, And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod, and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod, and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. And the magicians said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. I love this part of the story. The Pharaoh's magicians could evidently turn rods into snakes, water into blood, and even appear to summon frogs. But lice, this one has them declaring, this is the finger of God. They are stumped. How remarkable is this? Notice in verse 19, the magicians are telling the Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Are there other examples of people striving hard to disbelieve a miraculous sign or wonder? Remember when we talked in the Book of Mormon in 3 Nephi? In chapter 1 of 3 Nephi, there was a great sign given in heaven announcing the birth of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 1 tells us the people began to forget those signs and wonders that they had heard and began to be less and less astonished at a sign or wonder from heaven. 
insomuch that they began to be hard in their hearts and blind in their minds, and began to disbelieve all which they had heard and seen, imagining up some vain thing in their hearts, that it was wrought by men and by the power of the devil, to lead away and to deceive the hearts of the people. And thus did Satan get possession of the hearts of the people. So perhaps this is the kind of thing that's happening with Pharaoh. So let's go on in chapter 8 with the next plague. This is the plague of flies. But notice this time the Lord is creating another miraculous event. Yes, there's the plague. But now in verse 22, it tells us, And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, to the end that thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, and I will put a division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall be the sign. So it makes one wonder if for the first plagues, the people of Israel were also affected. Well, and that may be one of the reasons why Pharaoh wouldn't believe. Look, it's affecting you. It's affecting us. You know, this is just a natural thing that's happening. But now, with a division, it can't be more clear. This is specifically for you, Pharaoh. So, as a result, Pharaoh promises to allow Moses to take the Israelites to worship in the wilderness if Moses will entreat God to take away that plague. And in verse 29, And Moses said, Behold, I go out from thee, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. And there remained not one. And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. So once again, the pain is taken away and Pharaoh changes his mind. Now, what's interesting is that Moses gives a very clear warning to Pharaoh. Don't deal deceitfully anymore or there's going to be a problem. Now, this is plague number four. Not only did Pharaoh deal deceitfully in this particular plague, he's going to keep dealing deceitfully. For those who feel that the God of Israel, Jehovah, is being perhaps abusive to the Pharaoh, he's really giving him every opportunity not to disobey him. He really is. But he keeps doing it. Yeah. And think about that. It is time and time again the Lord is being incredibly merciful to Pharaoh. It's going to happen, Pharaoh. How bad do you want things to get? before this is going to happen. That is up to him. Right. And when we get to the last plague, you'll see how bad things get. Right. But for now, let's go to Exodus chapter 9, and let's go to the next plague. Again, Moses commands Pharaoh to let my people go. Again, Pharaoh refuses. In verse 6, And all the cattle of Egypt died, but the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Remember that in the King's English, the word cattle can and often does refer to more than cows. It would include sheep, 
goats, oxen, and even more broadly sometimes to include horses, donkeys, and camels. See verse 3. So now Egypt loses a lot of livestock. It would seem that they didn't quite lose all of their livestock, as we'll see later in the chapter. But do you know who didn't lose any livestock? The people of Israel. Perhaps that should be an important detail for everyone at this time to remember. And maybe Pharaoh uses that as another excuse to be bitter because it didn't happen to them. It did happen to him. And so he will exert what power he has. Well, let's go on with the next plague. Number six, boils. Let's take a look in verse 10 to see what they did about those. And they took the ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses sprinkled it up toward heaven, and it became a boil, breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Again, the Pharaoh refused. Hmm. Now here again, it's easy for us to think to ourselves, wow, magic ashes. The ashes aren't the important thing. They're a physical manifestation to Pharaoh that Moses, God's servant, is doing something to call on the power of God. Right. So let's go to the next plague. Verse 13. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand, that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people, that thou wilt not let them go? Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof, even until now. Send therefore now, and gather thy cattle, and all that thou hast, in the field, for upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field and shall not be brought home, the hail shall come down upon them, and they shall die. He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses, and he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. So interesting wording there. People who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh. This means that some of the Egyptian cattle would be preserved, but only by those who actually believed Moses. Also, note the magnitude of this hail. In verse 24, we learn that it is hail and fire mingled with the hail. Very grievous. Uh, yeah. So, this was very devastating. Verse 26, Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. Uh, this time? <laughs> Back to the verse. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. And so, Moses ends the plague 
And in verse 34, And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Now, as we learn in verse 31 to 32, the hail not only destroyed the cattle that were not taken indoors, but it destroyed their flax and barley. The wheat and rye, or spelt, as the footnote tells us, survived because it was not fully grown. But the Lord has something else in mind to finish that off. So that brings us to plague number eight, the locusts. Let's take a look in Exodus chapter 10. The first three verses, God tells Pharaoh through Moses to let his people go. Let's pick it up in verse four. Else if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coast and they shall cover the face of the earth that one cannot be able to see the earth and they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses, and the houses of all thy servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy father's fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? I love that Pharaoh's servants have now turned on him. Yeah. You know, my gosh, let these people out. (laughs) Going on in verse 8, And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said unto them, Go, serve the Lord your God. Who are they that shall go? And Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds will we go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. Now, in verse 10, it's a little confusing what he says. Let me share with you the NIV version of verses 10 and 11. And there it says, Pharaoh said, The Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you have been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. So why would Pharaoh care about the women, children, and cattle? Remember that Egypt at this point has next to no cattle and their barley crop is destroyed. Also, Perhaps keeping the women and children in Egypt will ensure that the men will return. Right. You know, I'm impressed by the fact that although we know that the Lord is going to deliver them out of Egypt, even going out into the wilderness to worship is a family thing, not just for part of the family. Going on in verse 14, And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them there were no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they did eat every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. There remained not any green thing in the trees or in the herbs of the field through all the land of Egypt. Okay, now Egypt has no crop. Every living plant is eaten or destroyed. 
So let's see how Pharaoh handles this in verse 16. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. See, where have I heard that before? It's kind of like a broken record at this point, you know? Uh-huh. And so God took away the plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And we have more plagues. Right. This brings us to plague number nine, starting in verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven. And there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Now, this is interesting. For this plague... Moses doesn't use a rod or ashes or anything, just his hand. But notice again here, the darkness affects the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. That had to be really weird to observe from like a great distance. I don't know how that works, but it did. Verse 24, And Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go ye, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. So are you following this? Okay, your men can go and you can take your families, but your flocks and herds have to stay. Why would Pharaoh be concerned about keeping the flocks? Egypt doesn't have any, or very little, nor do they have any crops for food. But this compromise isn't good enough. Verse 25, And Moses said, Thou must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not be an hoof left behind, for thereof must we take to serve the Lord our God. And we know not with what we must serve the Lord until we come thither. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said unto him, Get thee from me, take heed to thyself, see my face no more. For in the day that thou seest my face, thou shalt die. And Moses said, Thou hast spoken well. I will see thy face again no more. Now, that is a somewhat ominous end to the communication between Moses and Pharaoh. It sure is. I wonder if you've felt, as we've been talking about the plague so far, if you've ever had an experience like this in your own personal life, where you say a prayer and plead for something to be fixed or resolved in your life, and it does, but you still return back to previous behaviors And maybe not as dramatic here as Pharaoh, but this kind of back and forth where the Lord will bring us along and give us every opportunity. And the harder it gets, often it's because of our own choices to fight. Or as the Lord says to Paul, it's hard to kick against the pricks. The Lord can help us, and he will. Sometimes it takes extra motivation. In this case, things get pretty heavy. The country is destroyed. His people, even his magicians, have turned against him. And now he still will not allow them to go. Let's go with the final plague in chapter 11. Let's pick it up in verse 4. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. In the Institute Manual it offers this commentary. In the typology of the Passover, the children of God, Israel, are in bondage to an evil power, Egypt. Similarly, all of God's children come into a world of sin and may find themselves in bondage to Satan and the powers of sin. Thus, the Pharaoh could be thought of as a type or symbol of Satan. In light of this truth, it should be noted that what finally released the children of Israel from the bondage of the Pharaoh, the symbol of Satan, was the death of the firstborn of Egypt. In like manner, the atoning sacrifice of the firstborn Son of God freed the children of God from death, a bondage to Satan. I like that comparison. That's really neat. Well, let's go on to chapter 12, verse 3. The Lord speaks again to Moses in verse 3. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. Now check the footnotes. The lamb must not be eaten raw or boiled, but roasted, and the edible inner parts must be roasted along with it. The idea is that the lamb was whole. Verse 10, And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Now this is describing the very first Passover and Passover Seder, the feast marking the beginning of Passover. To explore more concepts on the symbolism and significance of the Passover, here are a couple of video links. We've recommended the channel before, Messages of Christ. This channel is 
a wonderful resource. And Daniel Smith, who does the channel, is a friend of ours. These videos will really help you make great connections between the Passover and the Atonement. Also, the church has a short video on Old Testament culture that talks about the Passover, and you can find it here. But here are some basic interpretations of the Passover meal. The lamb is Jesus Christ. The blood is the atonement of Jesus Christ, the blood that he has shed. The bitter herbs represent bondage and sin. And the unleavened bread is repentance or the removal of sin. There's even deeper symbolism, as Jay mentioned, but this is a good start. Going back to the chapter, verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door, and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. So let's go on in verse 28. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. You might find a parallel in that verse with what we read at the beginning. That was in chapter 7, verse 6, the first one we read. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them, so did they. And so this time, it's not just Moses and Aaron, but the children of Israel are now included. They did as the Lord had commanded, so did they. In verse 29, And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, that sat upon his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 31 through 51, as a result of this last plague, Pharaoh finally allowed the Israelites to go free. And I love the sense of urgency in verse 33. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we be all dead men. The Egyptians knew what was going on, and they were already bought into the fact that all the suffering that they have been going through was due to the fact that they weren't letting the people go. So the people, the Egyptians, were saying to the Israelites, yes, get out, go, please. We're going to die otherwise. Now note in chapter 11, verse 2, and chapter 12, verse 35, the Israelites are commanded to borrow jewels of silver and gold. Check the footnotes. It would seem that the King James translators made a unique choice. The Hebrew word sheal means simply to ask for these things or even demand. Borrowing would imply returning them later and failing to do so would have been considered theft. This is essentially payment for the labor that the Israelites performed for the Egyptians low these many years. The Egyptians were anxious to pay them if it meant they would leave. Right. From the Institute Manual, it says this, 
There have been numerous attempts through the ages to explain the plagues described in these chapters of Exodus. Some have tried to show that the various plagues were the result of some natural phenomenon, such as passing meteorites or the explosion of a volcanic island in the Mediterranean Sea. While there is some degree of logical progression in the plagues, the river's pollution could have driven the frogs out of the marshes to die, and this situation would have bred lice, flies, and disease. It is not possible at present to explain how the Lord brought about these miraculous events. The fact that the plagues were selective, that is, sent upon the Egyptians but not the Israelites, adds to their miraculous nature. God often works through natural means to bring about his purposes, but that fact does not lessen the miraculous nature of his work. In the plagues and eventual deliverance of Israel from the bondage of Egypt is a record of remarkable and miraculous intervention by God in behalf of his children. How he actually intervened is not nearly so significant as that he did intervene. I love that thought. It does call into question why were certain things chosen? Why frogs? Why lice? Why wasn't it a plague of armadillos? I don't know. Hmm. That would have been a cute plague. <laughs> I don't know. Armadillos can carry leprosy. Oh, all right. Well. Chapter 13. The first seven verses, Moses told the Israelites to remember the day they were brought out of Egypt by repeating the Passover feast each year on the anniversary of their deliverance. For more information on that, check out the Bible Dictionary on Feasts. Starting in verse 8, And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand and for a memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. Thou shalt therefore keep this ordinance in his season from year to year. Now here's an interesting thought. Have you ever had something happen to you in your family, or maybe in your local ward, that is so significant? Wouldn't it be interesting to make a note of that, and particularly for your children, to remember that this happened and why this happened to your family. Now, this is covering a much more broad group of people, but notice the importance of teaching the children, this is what the Lord did for me, and we are celebrating this every year to remember what the Lord had done. Yeah, whether it is small miraculous things or big miraculous things. We're going to see multiple examples, and we've seen some already, of setting up a spiritual monument, whether it's a physical thing or whether it's a ritual, an ordinance that helps us to remember. Now, it's interesting that he mentions that they're to keep the Passover from year to year, but remember how long the Lord said the people were to keep the ordinance of the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, the previous chapter, verse 14, it says, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. In verse 17, the same thing, ordinance forever. And also in verse 24. The seminary manual adds this clarification. On the evening before Jesus Christ was crucified, he and his disciples shared a Passover meal together. At the end of this meal, Jesus introduced the ordinance we now recognize as the sacrament. 
which he told his disciples to repeat in remembrance of him. The following day, as a fulfillment of the Passover, the Lamb of God was sacrificed on the cross for the sins of the world. His sacrifice ended the ordinance of blood sacrifice. After the Savior's crucifixion, his followers began to meet on the first day of the week to partake of bread and wine in remembrance of him. Right. So it's not so much that the Passover for Christians has ended. It's been reinterpreted into this new ordinance for the same purpose, to remember the sacrifice. And in fact, it's interesting that this new ordinance is performed much more frequently. Rather than once a year, it's once a week. Right. Now, in verses 11 through 22, Moses told the children of Israel that they were to sacrifice the firstborn males of their flocks and herds to the Lord. They were also to offer a sacrifice for each of their firstborn sons. This is an obvious reminder of the firstborn of God, the Messiah, who is to come. Also, when the Israelites left Egypt, they took Joseph's bones with them to bury them in the promised land as Joseph had requested. The Lord led Moses and the children of Israel as they traveled in the wilderness. From the Institute Manual, we get this insight. The route Israel was to go was indicated by a pillar of fire signifying the presence of the Lord going before them. They would have had a short journey had they been ready and capable of following the coastal route through Philistine lands to Canaan. Their faith, however, was not yet sufficient for such a task. God does not require a trial too great for one's faith. The phrase, they went up harnessed, seems to imply organization and orderliness and probably preparation for possible attack. Although the logistics of taking up to two million people into the wilderness is absolutely staggering, this verse suggests that it was not a disorganized flight, but rather an orderly exodus. Right. And so that we will pick up next week, the exodus from Egypt. This is a fascinating portion of the Old Testament, and this is a story that is probably one of the most well-known, and rightly so. This was a magnanimous event for the people of God. They are free from their four centuries of bondage. It's interesting to note how much this story emphasizes that it is only through the power of God that we can be freed from bondage. So access that power through prayer, through studying your scriptures, through listening to the words of prophets, and through acting on what we learn and sharing it. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll talk more about Moses and the Israelites in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>